Uh, if you're new here, we have notes on the tables. Uh, hopefully you have found those if you need one. Everybody doesn't have a note, you can raise your hand. Somebody might have some extra. Everybody got one? You're going to need this uh, this evening. <clears throat> okay. So uh, this uh, portion that we are looking at is called Nassau, and it comes from this term of lifting up. This whole portion starts off with describing how the priests uh, were charged with actually carrying the tabernacle. It's where it gets this uh, section of Scripture gets its, its title. <clears throat> but we're going to jump ahead into Numbers chapter 5 and deal with... <clears throat> um, it's called actually a strange uh, procedure, strange ceremony um, that God had his people do. And uh, at least uh, in the <clears throat> Jewish sources that I have and reading and stuff, that's actually how they refer to it as a, uh, an actually a strange ceremony that the, the Lord instructed them to be involved in. And so uh, we're going to look at this, and it's actually, I don't believe it's uh, str that strange, <clears throat> especially where we are today and able to look backward and see how uh, the Lord fulfilled this um, section of Scripture. And before we read it, <clears throat> and I want to pray with you, uh, and ask that you pray for me tonight. I don't start coughing. I don't, don't want to do that. Um, but this is a section of Scripture that... <clears throat> um, the liberal mindset, people, uh, modern, if you will, people, I'll say it that way, will say that the Old Testament is antiquated, <clears throat> it's anti-women, it needs to be updated, it needs to be modified, and we definitely don't need to be reading it or studying it. As a matter of fact, uh, there's no reason for even having it. And they'll use this passage of Scripture as a proof text to say that the Bible is anti-women, I want to show you as we study this tonight that that is totally wrong uh, and that the Bible is not anti-women. And in this section of Scripture, God is not picking on women. <clears throat> and so um, we're going to look at this and we're also going to look at how our Savior, Yeshua, fulfilled this in what some have called uh, the most beautiful love story never told about how Yeshua did this uh, and fulfilled this hidden prophecy in Scripture. And it is, the details in here are in, in, incredible when we're able to look backward and see how he, he did fulfill this and God had him do this as pictures so that when Yeshua showed up, they should have been able to see it. But let's, uh, let's pray together and then we'll dive into this passage of Scripture and look at it. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless us with your presence. I pray, Lord, that your word would come to life for us, um, that by looking at it, it would change us from the inside out, um, that we would fall more deeply in love with you, um, and that we would desire to live our lives in such a way that you would be glorified. So, Lord, bless us here tonight, and uh, Lord, speak to us, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read through this whole <clears throat> section here in Numbers chapter 5, 11 through 31, then we'll come back and, and look at these uh, things. So in this first section here, I do have it in <clears throat> the Scriptures version, uh, and I did this again. I find this so um, 
intriguing. <clears throat> when I first started studying this, it talked about, <clears throat> I read in one of the, like I said, one of the Jewish sources I have, and they were talking about writing this curse with the very name of God. And I had read it a few times, listened to it, I don't know how many times, read it in the ESV, which is what I typically use, and I went, I don't remember that. So I read it again in the ESV, and I went, well, that's, where, where is it? I'm 62 years old, and I'm just telling you, and I know better, and I'm trying to rewire my brain to understand this, and yet I went, well, let me look at it in the Scriptures version. And when I did that, I went, well, yeah, well, there it is. And in the ESV, it says the Lord. So I just skimmed over it. Even though I try to, when I see it, read it as God's name, Yahovah, <laughs> I didn't, and I didn't see it. And so I've got it in here again using this version so that you can see certain things, okay? So starting with verse 11, it says, And Yahovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man's wife turns aside and has committed a trespass against him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no one, there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. And a spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or a spirit of jealousy has come upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and he shall bring the offering for her, one-tenth of an eff of barley flour. He is not to pour oil on it or put frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing crookedness to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and shall make her stand before Yahovah. And the priest shall take set-apart water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the dwelling place and put it into the water. And the priest shall make the woman stand before Yahovah and shall uncover the woman's head and put the offering for remembrance in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy, while the priest holds in his hand the bitter water that causes a curse. And the priest shall make her swear and say to the woman, if no man has lain with you, and if you, are, you have not turned aside to uncleanness under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have turned aside under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall make the woman swear with an oath of the curse, and he shall say to the women, Yahovah make you a curse, and an oath among your people when Yahovah makes your thigh waste away and your belly swell. And this water that causes the curse shall go into your inward parts and make your belly swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And the priest shall write these curses in a book and shall wipe them off into the bitter water. <clears throat> and shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings the curse. And the water that brings a curse shall enter into her to become bitter. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand and shall wave the offering before Yahweh and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a hand filled with the offering as its remembrance offering and burn it on the altar and afterward make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and has committed a trespass against her husband, that the water that brings the curse shall enter her and become bitter, and her belly swell, and her thigh shall waste away. 
and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be clear and shall conceive children. This is the Torah of jealousy when a wife turns aside under her husband's authority and defiles herself. Or when a spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife. Then he shall make the woman stand before Yahovah, and the priest shall do to her all this Torah. And the man shall be clear of his crookedness, but the woman bear her crookedness. <clears throat> all right. So let's go back <clears throat> and look through this section of Scripture. I know you're already thinking, wow, that, well, that was pretty long, and uh, that last statement seems to be uh, pretty one-sided. Let's go through here and look at this. So I highlighted some of these words in here for you to bring them to your attention. I want you to notice something. It's talking about if a man becomes jealous of his wife, thinking at least, or a spirit of jealousy has come upon him is what it says, um, that she's been unfaithful. But I want you to notice what it says here in verse 13. It says, it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, meaning he didn't catch her in it. It's concealed that she's defiled herself. <clears throat> Uh, there's not a witness, and she wasn't caught in the act. So this isn't a publicly known thing. It's sort of, it is hidden, but a spirit of jealousy has come on the husband, and he wants to, to deal with this and bring her before God and before the court and, and deal with it. <clears throat> so you have to understand that this is hidden, and it's a question of whether or not she really has or not, and it says that the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, whether or not she really has defiled herself or not. That brings up a whole other topic of this spirit of jealousy. Uh, and is that just a feeling of jealousy on him because it says a spirit of jealousy comes upon him? Or is that an actual spirit out there that's messing with us? I think it's an actual spirit that's out there that's messing with us. That's what I think. Um, and sometimes you can become jealous when there's no reason to be jealous. Maybe because you're the one with the problem. Right? The other thing here <coughs> is it could be uh, that the woman has been unfaithful. The spirit of jealousy comes on the guy. He has no proof, but he wants to find out if this is right or not or if it, if it really has happened. So <coughs> then there's this strange ceremony. The priest is told he's to take some holy water <clears throat> out of the brazen altar. It's, it's, in here it's called uh, separated or set apart water. It's holy, that's what the word means. Holy means set apart. So he takes this water out of the brazen altar. He puts, puts it in a cup. He takes some dust from the floor of the tabernacle and puts it in the water. Then he brings an offering of jealousy that the man brings for the wife. It's a special offering of jealousy and remembrance. Remembering what? Remembering the vows that they took. This is where this connection between this section and the vows of the Nazarite and Samson and all that come into play because they are connected. <clears throat> If you remember, we just talked about at, we were talking about the feast of Pentecost, Shavuot, 
the people were all at the base of Mount Sinai, and they made a commitment. They made a vow. Everything that the Lord says we will do, we will follow, and they moved into this marriage covenant with God. Then they immediately broke the covenant, right? With what? The golden calf. We'll get to that in a second. <clears throat> so this is dealing with an individual or a, an individual family, but I want you to start to see Israel in this picture. That's real important. Watch this. So <clears throat> he takes this water and, and he puts it in something. What's he put it in? An earthen or a clay cup. That's important to remember. He puts it in a cup. He puts the water in there. He puts the dirt in there from the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is what? <clears throat> the tabernacle is a copy of the heavenly throne. Taking the dirt from the tabernacle is taking a, a picture. <clears throat> it represents heaven. It represents God's throne, his dwelling place. This is between you and God. And remember, he said, the whole issue is for this woman to come and stand before God himself. Then it says, God is going to cause the waters to become bitter. And God is the one that's going to cause this to become a curse in you if you're guilty. You tracking with that? Okay. So, <clears throat> this, uh, he makes her... He, he says, this is what's going to happen. And then what happens is the priest takes a parchment of paper. And he literally writes out the curse. And the curse is pretty much verse 21. Where the quote is, Yahovah make you a curse and an oath or a testimony among the people. When Yahovah makes your thigh waste away and your belly swell. And this water that causes the curse shall go into your inward parts and make your belly swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman is supposed to reply with amen and amen, which means I agree, I agree. Okay, that's, that's her commitment. <clears throat> he hand writes that out on a scroll, if you will, or a parchment of paper. Then he washes it into the water. He washes the ink into the water and the woman drinks the water and is drinking in what the curse the ink watch this and the very name of God you following all that if she's guilty when you read through everything that's written about this, not only does her belly swell and her thigh give out, she dies. In the Talmud, it talks about how that uh, not only that, but they cite where her, the guilty party with her also died, even though he wasn't even there, would become sick and die. <coughs> And I know this sounds uh, really harsh, but I want you to see something here. If you turn the page and you look at 
verse 31, and it says, And the man shall be clear from crookedness, but the woman bear her crookedness. And you go, what in the world is that? Um, I believe this is actually a picture of Yeshua and the church. And I'm going to show you why. Actually, it's Yeshua and the ten northern tribes of Israel. So, if you remember, because we've talked about this a lot here, God is into something, right? He's into symbolism. You know why? We are so slow and dense and stubborn. And we have to read it. We have to see it. We have to hear it. And we need to do that about a million times before we even start to get it. So, this isn't just something that God goes, listen, this is what I want you to do because I'm going to keep you as a nation pure and there's not going to be any adultery among you. Superficially, that's how, that look, that's how this looks. That he wants to deal with <clears throat> uh, impurity and adultery and that there shouldn't be adultery among the people of Israel. There shouldn't be adultery among the people of God. And we all get that, right? That, you know, we, we shouldn't be involved in that. It's bigger than that. And there's a reason he has them go through this ritual. I mean, why go through all this stuff, right? Why not just come before the priest? Did you do it? No, I didn't do it. He thinks I did it. God goes, yeah, she did it. She just falls over and dies, right? Why go through all this other stuff and <clears throat> writing all this stuff down and drinking these bitter waters and uh, the name of God and all these statements and these offerings that are given. Did you notice in the offering, maybe not, I kind of went over it a little bit. <coughs> I had it highlighted in verse 15. They're not to pour oil on it or put frankincense on it. What happened when Jesus died? He didn't get prepared, right? The body didn't get prepared when he was put in the tomb. That's why the women were going there early on Sunday morning to prepare the body from the spices that they bought. They were going there to put it on it because it wasn't put on the body when they hastily put him into the tomb. I think that's why God said, <coughs> sorry, don't do it in this ceremony because this ceremony is a picture of my Messiah that's coming. <coughs> so, uh, and then it says, the man is clear from crookedness, but the woman isn't when she's guilty. Why would he even have to say that? Well, because the man was connected with his wife. Maybe he'd slept with his wife. She'd been unfaithful, become unclean. And God is like, <clears throat> even though there was this union and she becomes unclean, that doesn't make him unclean. Wow. So God is in this relationship with Israel, and Israel does what? She becomes unfaithful with all these other foreign gods. Let's look at this so that I understand. I'm not cherry-picking passages. I'm not trying to make... It's just, actually, when you understand this, you can see it everywhere in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 5, verses 9 and 10, <clears throat> he's warning Israel, and he's saying, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, these other gods. Why? He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So he's telling us, he goes, look, I'm a jealous God. I'm, a je I'm jealous for you because of my namesake. <clears throat> and you're my bride. He refers to Israel like his bride. Let's look at that. In Jeremiah 3, verse 8, because he does something. <clears throat> We've talked about this in the past here, but I thought it was fascinating that here we are at this passage, and so I wanted to write all this out for you and have these notes so you can take it home with you. In Jeremiah 3, verse 8, he says, She saw for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel. Now, in this section, he's talking about the ten northern tribes of Israel. You have to pay attention to this. <clears throat> and the two southern tribes of Judah. And he's saying, basically, Judah saw what I did to Israel, and Judah still did what Israel did. That's the background. I'm going to challenge you to go home and read that whole passage. But he says, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. There it is. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Wow. You go down to verse 20 of the very same chapter. And he says, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. <clears throat> right there, he's telling him, he says, look, I was like a husband to you. You were like a wife to me. We moved into this marriage covenant relationship at Mount Sinai. I told you when you went into the land, don't worship me like those other gods. Don't mess with them. Not only did you do that, you did it openly. And then you went and started worshiping these other gods everywhere. Folks, it got so bad. They even had altars and statues of these other gods in the temple. Yeah, it was bad. So you jump down to Isaiah. I want you to see it again here on how God has, how he's laying all this out. Then I want to try to make this, hopefully it'll make some sense. In Isaiah chapter 50, verses 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? I'm going to pause for a second. I want you to look up here at me. <clears throat> when we read through this, I want you to understand that God was in a marriage relationship with Israel. Israel divided into two nations, if you will, the ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes. The northern tribes... He issued her a certificate of divorce. He said, I'm going to issue you a certificate of divorce. I'm done with you. Except he's also made a lot of prophecies that he would bring all 12 tribes back. This whole thing here in the book of Numbers dealing with the unfaithful wife is a foreshadowing of what the 10 northern tribes of Israel are going to do. And Yeshua is going to come and pay the price for the unfaithful wife. Yeah. 
because the whole goal and everything is to bring all 12 tribes back in the land and everybody else from the nations grafted into this story experiencing salvation. You following with me? When you have that in the back of your mind, now we're going to read this passage in Isaiah and it should make unbelievable sense. I hope the Holy Spirit just rolls all over you, in you, and through you, and you get goosebumps or whatever happens when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And this makes unbelievable sense where before it might have been extremely confusing. <clears throat> so he says in verse 1, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why? When I came there was no man. Why? When I called there was no one to answer. Now watch this. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Now this is the part here where you go, well now who's talking here? What's going on here? Because I thought this is God talking. You following with me? That's where it gets kind of weird. You go, well, I don't understand. What? <clears throat> if you understand, this is now Yeshua. Watch this. The Lord has given me a tongue of those who were taught. God gave him a tongue. How? Putting him in flesh. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hide not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is one of those prophecies where most of the prophecies in the Old Testament about Messiah are not blatant. The only way to really see them was after the fact. And you go, well, who? what in the world? Because he says, okay, somehow God is talking here, but then God is also saying that God has given him something and that he's able to sustain people who are weary just by the, his word. Who is it that's able to do that? Yeshua is. Uh, and we can see here where he talks about how that he wasn't rebellious. He didn't open up his mouth. He didn't turn back. He didn't run away. He gave his back up to those who beat him. He gave his face to those that beat him and pulled out his beard and spit on him. We know that this is talking about Yeshua. So what he's saying here is like, okay, look, there's a certificate of divorce, right? But are you going to stand there and tell me I do not have the power to solve this problem that you think is unsolvable? Because in the word of God, it also says that if a husband issues a certificate of divorce to his wife and she's unfaithful, 
she goes and joins herself with another man, he cannot remarry her. He can't. He says it'll be an abomination and defile the land. It will defile that place if that were to be happening. Did it happen? Sure it happened. Does it happen today? Sure it does. <clears throat> but according to God's own word, he said, I can't do that. So watch this. God does not break his own law to try to make the solution easier. He actually fulfills it in such a way that for the rest of eternity, we're going to go, oh my goodness. God, you are awesome. We're literally going to go, are you kidding me? That's just unbelievable. <clears throat> so this whole idea of drinking and partaking of something and it having an effect on us. I want you to see these other shadow pictures because this isn't the only place we run into this. So back in Exodus <clears throat> chapter 15, verses 23 through 26, it says, And they came to Myra, and they were unable to drink the waters of Myra, for they were bitter. So the name of it was called Myra. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we supposed to drink? And he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the waters, the waters became sweet. And he made a law and a right ruling for them. And there he tried them. And he said, if you diligently obey the voice of Yehovah, your Elohim, and do what is right in his eyes, he shall, and, and shall listen to his commands and shall guard his, all his laws, I shall bring on you none of the diseases I brought on the Mitzrites or the Egyptians, for I am Yehovah who heals you. So let me ask you a question because people talk about this all the time. So was it some kind of special tree that he threw in the water that had some kind of medicinal purposes and magical powers and changed the water from poisonous to sweet? Or was it Moses' act of obedience that caused God to move and change the waters? I side with the latter. Um, and you'll notice that, and, and it, I like the Scripture's version here because that's what it says in the original. It, it's describing either a log, it's not a branch, either a log or a whole tree. So they show up and there are bitter waters. They can't drink it. And so God tells Moses, here's what you do. You put a tree in those bitter waters and then, then those waters will bring life. Who is it that did that for us? When we were in the bitterness of our sin, Jesus who what? Hung on a tree. It's a picture of the Messiah over and over and over and over again. Now, I want you to add a passage. I know we did this when we went through Exodus, but for these notes, because I didn't put it in here, you need to add verse 27. Just write that down there and go read it later. At the bottom of page three, just add verse 27. I'm going to tell you what it says, but I want you to go home and read it. It says, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water, and 70 palm trees, and they camped there. After they come to the bitter waters and a tree is put in it, which I think is a picture of the Messiah, and the water becomes sweet and they're able to drink it, it sustains them, then they travel on to the next destination, and the very next destination 
has 12 fountains of water. Why 12? 12 tribes of Israel. And 70 palm trees. Why 70? What's from the table of nations? There were 70 nations. It's because God is pulling all peoples into his kingdom. And he's doing it through the nation of Israel. That's why the Messiah came through Israel, because God is painting a picture and saying, I'm God, there's no other like me, and I'm going to fulfill it in such a way that you're going to be amazed, and forever you're going to give me the glory due me. I think it's pretty cool, right? <clears throat> so turn the page to page number four. So you get, I'm going to go all the way to the end of the book of Exodus. Now we're going to get to the golden calf thing. So God shows up. He speaks to them on Mount Sinai. Fire comes down on top of the mountain, burns the top of the mountain, scares the people so bad. They're like, Moses, you go talk to God because if we talk to him again, we're going to die. Moses goes back on the mountain. They think he killed him. They talk Aaron into making a golden calf to worship Yahovah, but as a mediator because they need a new mediator because their other mediator just died. So they make the golden calf. Moses comes back down, sees it, and then this is what happens in verse 19. And as soon as he came, down, came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Folks, it's not that dancing is evil. It's just evil when you're doing it to an idol. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made, burned it with fire, ground it in powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. God's not just saying, look, <clears throat> this is what you did with it, so I'm just going to make you drink it so it'll, you know, you'll taste its bitterness or whatever. Folks, he's painting a picture. He's painting a picture. <clears throat> and what you take in is who you are. And what you say you want, that's what you're going to get, and you're going to reap the rewards of that, be it good or evil. You want a golden calf? You want an idol? You can have it. But guess what? It's coming in you. It's going to kill you. <clears throat> uh, let's, let's move ahead here because I want you to see something else so that you understand that <laughs> I'm not just proof texting this. It real, there, are, there are so many passages I had to stop. I ended up with nearly five pages here. In Ezekiel 23, verses 30 through 35. <clears throat> now this here again, he's talking about Israel, the ten northern tribes, and Judah, the two southern tribes. Okay? And he's describing the two, and he's warning Judah, because Judah has been doing what Israel, the northern tribes, have been doing. And it says, this has been brought upon you because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You've gone the way of your sister. Watch this. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God. 
you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. Mm. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister, your sister Samaria. He talks about it in other places where that's a reference to Israel. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breast. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, thus for, thus, therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. He's describing <clears throat> Judah and saying, <clears throat> you need to understand something. I issued Israel a certificate of divorce, and she has a cup of vengeance and wrath and judgment, and I'm going to make you drink it. And it's large, and it's deep, and it's filled with horrifying consequences. And you're going to bear the consequences of everything that you've done. <clears throat> And you're going to bear the consequences of all the stuff and the way you've worshipped these other gods and gone after these other people and men and stuff instead of me. I've got another passage I want you to add. So you need to add it right here. <clears throat> it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 28. This is another strange passage found in, your, in the gospel accounts. A Canaanite woman comes up to Jesus, and she has a child that's um, beset with these demons. She begs Jesus to come and heal her child. I think it's a child. And Jesus says something that's absolutely mind-boggling. It's found in verse 24, and it says, her, first, he doesn't even respond to her. The disciples say, man, send her away. She's driving us crazy. She's crying out to him again, and this is what he says to her. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah. She's a Canaanite woman. She's not even... Uh, She's not part of the house of Israel. In other words, this mixed that has mixed in with the Gentiles and been gone for nearly a thousand years by the time this happens, 750 years actually. <clears throat> um, she's a Canaanite. She's a foreigner. But she believes and understands that Jesus is the Messiah. She calls him out, you know, son of David, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. He's like, doesn't even respond. She goes, please have mercy on me. I, you know, I know you can heal me. And he's like, I was only sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she talks about, <clears throat> you know, e even dogs get the crumbs. And he's like, basically, man, I wish I could see this kind of faith among my own people. So let it be done unto you. But I want you to see that his response was, this is so telling. He goes, listen, the people I was sent for were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because he's bringing the 12 tribes back. This will tell you why he came. 
Now, <clears throat> Jesus talks about... <coughs> um, well, let, let's go on here, Luke chapter 22, verse 42. This is where he makes this statement, and everybody thinks it's dealing with the cup of redemption from the Passover meal, and it's not. So Jesus is in the garden praying the night he's deceived, or the night he's... Uh, um, turned over and uh, by Judas, <clears throat> and he's arrested, and he's praying all night, and the disciples can't stay awake with him. He keeps coming back three times, and this is what he's praying, saying, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. What cup could he possibly be talking about? He told us that he came, what? For the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was given a divorce decree, was an unfaithful bride, was an unfaithful wife. Back in Numbers, we're told what was supposed to happen, that it, she was to drink this cup of horror and a curse, and if she was guilty... Her belly would swell, her thigh would give out, and she would die. I mean, that's kind of strange, right? Your belly would swell, and your thigh would give out, and you'd die. I mean, it's like, what in the world is that? I didn't take the time to pull all this together tonight. <clears throat> I wasn't sure how long I'd be able to talk. You should do a study on crucifixion. Because you know what happens? You suffocate, but one of the things that happens is all, you can't get rid of the bodily fluids. It starts to build up. Your belly swells up from the bodily fluids within you. Your joints get pulled all out. And because of the way you're on the cross with your thighs, you can't pick yourself up to survive and you die. So God says, this is what's going to happen. This is what will happen with an unfaithful wife. This is how she will die. And this whole picture is a picture of me sending myself as the Messiah, as Yeshua, to drink your cup, to release you from the divorce decree so that I can legally remarry you. It is the faithful husband drinking the curse of his unfaithful wife so he can remove the divorce decree because it stands in effect legally as long as the husband's alive. Once he dies, then she could remarry legally. So to release Israel from that divorce decree, God becomes flesh, comes down in here, drinks the cup of horror that was meant for his unfaithful wife, comes back to life as first fruits of the goal of bringing all Israel back together and prove that he is God and bring salvation to the nations, stealing souls directly out of the kingdom of hell from all of these other demonic beings. It's an absolutely beautiful, powerful story. Is God against women? No. 
Is this thing one-sided? No, it's a picture. It's a picture of God being the faithful one. And watch this. And even though the world can't see it, it's hidden. She didn't get caught. The world didn't call her out on it and say, you've been unfaithful, Israel. Never really happened. To this day, still people totally don't see it. Even in the church. Because we've been told, don't study the Old Testament. It doesn't apply to anything. And without studying the Old Testament, there's no way to understand what the New Testament is even talking about. And we misrepresent everything, and we get everything so one-sided, and we think all we need to do is just confess Jesus, we get to go to heaven, and then we can do whatever we want to do. And God goes, no, I don't think so. If you're mine and called by my name, I want you to live according to the rules of my house. Because if you're called by my name, you're now a light to the world around you, and I want the world to know that I'm God and I'm not the same as Baal or Allah or anybody else. I'm different. I'm unique. I created everything. And everything is here by me, for me, and through me. And if you're part of mine and part of my family and you belong to me, I want you to live different so the world would know that you're part of mine. You're part of, you're part of my family. So... <clears throat> Now then, this is where you get into these other statements that you go, oh, so this wasn't so weird after all when you understand the bigger picture and the whole story of what's going on. You get to John chapter 6, verse 52 through 59. <clears throat> Most people think, man, this is just really weird. Jesus throws something out there just to tick everybody off, scare them half to death. He's going to say something so outrageous you know, they're going to have to pick sides. No. He's getting them back to this picture of taking in God for either blessings or curses. Remember when she would drink the cup? What was she drinking? She was drinking the very word of God that contained the name of God. You following that? How long has Jesus existed? Before I read this. If I ask a question, that means, there you go, forever. We believe that he's always existed with the Father, right? Everything that was created was created by him, for him, and through him. Nothing came into being that he didn't create. All of that. Uh, so, um, he's, he's not leading us astray, and he's not saying something out of the ordinary, and so when he had her drink this in and drink in God, it's also a reference, if you will, to the Messiah, right? So watch this. Now we're in the New Testament. <clears throat> so Jesus, uh, the Jews were disputing among themselves. Reason is because they're in the synagogue. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? There it is. Huh. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As a living father has sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down of heaven. Not like the bread of the fathers that ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things while he was in the synagogue and taught in Capernaum. What's he describing here? See, this is where (coughs) when you don't understand your Bible and you don't understand the Old Testament, you don't understand how it ties the New Testament, you take a passage like this and, and you turn it into these weird doctrines where, okay, if you pray over this juice and this bread, it actually becomes the very body and blood of Jesus, and when you take it, you get salvation. It's called transubstantiation. That doesn't matter. Um, <clears throat> there are others that believe it at least symbolically does that, but that it actually brings salvation. Do you think that by eating God you get saved? It could be a curse, right? If you're walking with God and you take God in, then it's life. If you love him, you're trying to serve him, you want to honor him, you want to glorify him, and you take God in, then God is your life. But if you take in God thinking, if I do these things, then I get saved and I can do whatever I want, believe whatever I want, I can even go out with other lovers and he won't care and God will say, well, go ahead and take me in. So what you're going to do, but guess what? My holiness will consume everything that is unholy. That means your attitude, your heart, your actions, everything else. You think that by doing something, you get a free ticket. The doing is a mirror of the heart. It's just that simple. And if the heart is wrong, therefore then what you did will what? Bring about destruction. You following that? Well, if that is the case, then turn the page. (laughs) And then now this is going to make perfect sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 through 32. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. There it is. This is where Paul got this. Because he understood his Bible, and he understood the Old Testament, and he understood what was happening. And he goes, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we judged ourselves personally, got our hearts right, and then got involved in this, then there wouldn't be a problem. He says, but when, we, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what was going on? They were observing what we today refer to as the Lord's Supper, and they were doing it weekly. Well, there was a lot of impoverished people. So you know what they would do? Paul tells us in this passage, he says, you know what I hear is going on? There's real gluttony and, and drunkenness going on. Some of y'all are getting there, and you're really jumping to the front of the line, and you're saying that you're eating this under the Lord, and you're celebrating God, and you're worshiping God through this meal, 
and you're getting drunk and you're eating more than you should be eating and there's people literally going without food. They were relating this to pagan practices. So if I do this with this new God, I get saved and everything, and then they were just acting like idiots. And Paul goes, y'all don't get it, do you? Because you're not judging this rightly, and you're eating this with the wrong attitude, you're literally eating and drinking in judgment. Folks, it wasn't that they didn't pray over it properly before they ate and then they died. It wasn't that they didn't come in with a spirit of humility and then died. They didn't get it at all. And they were doing the exact opposite of what God teaches us in his word that we should do. We should be humble and loving and kind. We should think more about others than ourselves. We shouldn't be jumping in line. We shouldn't be getting in front of everybody. We shouldn't be, you know, when there's a potluck dinner, we shouldn't be running to the front and then piling on your plate until it nearly breaks and just, you know, nobody else got anything. Well, that's too bad. That's why I always like to go last. And then I ask an honest question. Did everybody get what you wanted? I think it's safe that way. Anyway, everybody says, yes, okay, then it's okay to pile up my plate. (laughs) Uh, Might be nothing but green beans and a salad, but, you know, but, but anyhow, Um, Well, they were doing just the opposite of that. And this is why Paul says, this is why some of you are weak and ill and some of you had died. He's referring it right back to this issue of drinking in this cup and this curse and, and people not understanding their Old Testament, which they didn't. Uh, <clears throat> so for us, here's what I want you to see. Israel was unfaithful. And God divorced her. Judah, and I've said this before, but here we are again because it's just everywhere in your Bible. Sometimes I feel like I'm a broken record, but it's like everywhere I turn, there it is. Judah decided they'd come up with a solution to God's problem when God didn't have a problem. He told us in Isaiah, that's why I wanted you to have that passage, when he says, where's your, where's your mother's certificate of divorce where I sent her away, sold her off into slavery? Yeah, I did. I did do that. Then he goes, is my hand too short to save? He's saying, yeah, that's what I did. I know I prophesied I was bringing everybody back. You really think I can't do it? This is in Isaiah talking about a passage that's describing the Messiah that's going to come. Is that not incredible? Folks, only God can do that. That's why God said, is there another God like me anywhere that can tell you the very end of the matter from the very beginning? And as a matter of fact, I'm going to do it in section in areas where everybody is going to think it's not possible. It's simply not possible that this could happen. And God does it. The Apostle Paul said if these evil beings, these demons and fallen beings had understood the Messiah, they wouldn't have murdered him. The Apostle Paul also says that what did God do when he brought salvation through Jesus Christ in Colossians? He says he took the written decree with its legal requirements of our, I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, of our indebtedness 
and he canceled it by nailing it to the cross. Folks, what he nailed to the cross wasn't the Torah. What he nailed to the cross were the curses that were supposed to be ours to drink. That had these legal requirements. He also nailed to the cross the divorce decree that said we couldn't get remarried to our husband who we were unfaithful to. And God nailed it to the cross, resurrected the Messiah. The payment was sufficient. I can do miracles. I love you that much. That's why some people say it's the most beautiful love story never, ever told. How the faithful husband takes the curses of the unfaithful bride. Folks, this is why Yeshua prayed diligently so hard that his sweat turned to blood. There's a medical condition for that. I don't know if you know that or not. But there's an actual medical condition where the stress can get so high that the tiny corpuscles in your uh, outer part of your body and the skin and stuff will start to burst and your sweat will turn rose-colored. It's literally blood coming out of your pores. He was sweating that profusely with blood coming out of him saying, Father, is there any other way I can keep from drinking that cup? Because it was deep and full of all the abominations imaginable against him. It wasn't that he was afraid of physical death. You want me to drink in that curse. And that's exactly what he did. Folks, that's incredible, isn't it? This is why studying your Bible and studying your Old Testament is so important. Because it'll make your New Testament explode with meaning and life and understanding <clears throat> and it will empower you to live your life, uh, like Jesus said, more abundantly. And then we get to this last section, and I wanted this in here for you just so that you'd have it written down. Because uh, do, I do quote this every week. But here it is uh, in the Scriptures version, because he says, Speak to Aaron and say to his sons, saying, This is how you bless the children of Israel. This is how you're to bless them. You're to say these things. Yahovah bless you and guard you. Yahovah make his face shine upon you and show you favor. Yahovah lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Thus they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I myself shall bless them. My, my, my. That's all in this reading for us for this week. <coughs> I want you to understand something. God loves you so much. So much. More than we can really grasp. But I hope that after tonight, the depth of your understanding of his love for you is deeper and richer and uh, more personal 
than maybe ever before. And your hopefully your desire to understand the very Word of God and live your life in such a way that it will glorify Him uh, will burn within you to have a passion to glorify your God and King that gave up so much for you. Here's how we typically think with this New Testament mentality. <clears throat> Jesus came, died on the cross for my sins and your sins, forgave me of my sins, and, uh, and now I confess Jesus and I get to go to heaven, right? Typically, that's what we think. And uh, <clears throat> for the typical person today, that means, you know, well, we probably lied a little and cheated a little, maybe, you know, did this or that, maybe a little, you know, premarital sex or something or you know I, I don't I don't know what what it might be we're just thinking about our personal sins right and thinking that God forgave us of that which he did but you know what we're not making the connection is that the sins weren't just breaking God's law they were sins against him They were sins against our relationship with him. And in essence, what he did was his focus was really on Israel because Israel, watch this, is symptomatic of the world. You and I aren't any different or any better. So before we start saying, men, those Israelites, men, they were really dumb, you know, out there in the wilderness, walk through the parting of the Red Sea. They get to the Mount Sinai. They get freaked out. Moses goes up. They make a golden calf. What a bunch of idiots. I'm telling you that if we were out there with them, we'd have done the same thing. They didn't understand. And they were self-centered. And they still had a lot of Egypt in them. We got a lot of America in us. My, my, my. Uh, <clears throat> And so what God did was he said, listen, I'm going to drink in Israel's sin and breaking covenant, marriage covenant with me. And if you're not part of Israel, guess what? I'm, I, it, it was so great. It even encompasses your sins. And I'm going to let you come into my family and I'm going to graft you into these people called Israel and I'm going to call you my children and call you to be a light to the nations. So let your light shine in such a way that people around you will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's right out of the New Testament, which is what he told Israel. When we have this New Testament mindset only, we think, well, you know, I did this when I was a teenager and I did this as a young adult or I did this the other day. And I said, God, save, save me and forgive me. And so he forgave me of those sins. Really sorry about that. I know I shouldn't have done that. <clears throat> Folks, what he did was far greater than that. That's what I'm trying to say. When our mindset is that, it is so superficial. Because we think, well, it, what, what's it got to do with, I mean, what's that really got to do with God? And, you know, my, my relationship with him. I know he wants to have a relationship with me, but I didn't have a relationship with him before, so if I did that, I mean, how does that affect the way he feels? You see what I'm saying? God's like, no. Uh, I drank the curses of my unfaithful wife. 
you want to be a part of this? No problem. What she did is emblematic of what you've been doing as well. And I love you enough to forgive you of your sins as well and bring you into my family. I think that's really cool. God loves you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to empower you. He wants to show the world through you that he is incredible. And there is nothing that will stop him from accomplishing his plans. Globally, locally, and even personally in your life and mine.